Galatians chapter 3, it is my humble privilege to be bringing the word to you all this morning, and uh, we're going to be starting in Galatians 3. Now, before I get started, I want to remind us a bit of the context of the last few weeks. We've been going through our series in uh, Galatians on a new identity, and Paul is writing to the Galatians uh, on addressing a controversy that's going on in the church there in Galatia. This controversy is that a group of false brothers, known as the Judaizers, they have infiltrated the church of Galatia, and they are swaying the Galatians to a false gospel. Now, the Judaizers are Jewish believers who believe that salvation comes by faith, but not by faith alone. They believe that after coming to know Christ by faith, you aren't really saved or justified before God, uh, unless you also adopt the Jewish law, particularly the ceremonial law and circumcision. Now, Judaizers, being Jewish, believed that they were sons of Abraham. They knew that the promises of God uh, and the law came through the Israelites, God's chosen people, and they knew that Jesus was a Jew. And they also knew their Old Testament really well. They knew that God spoke to Abraham of circumcision as part of the covenant and as part of being God's covenant people. Genesis 17:10 and verse 14 puts it this way. It says, "This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised." It's a sign of the covenant in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so the Judaizers believe that to keep the covenant, to be justified before God and not be cut off from their people, new believers, that's Gentiles, non-Jews, needed to become circumcised and obedient to the law. But Paul is adamant, as we've seen in the last few weeks, that the Judaizers are dead wrong. This is a gospel issue. They are adding something to the gospel. And so it's no longer justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's faith plus circumcision or faith plus works as a way of being justified. And in so doing, they are preaching a false gospel. You know, last week we saw with Shane, who was preaching through chapter 2, that Paul calls them false brothers. And we saw Paul state clearly last week that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to the context of this week, where Paul is addressing the Galatian believers who are being swayed by the Judaizers to the false gospel of faith plus works. And Paul is laying out his argument as to why that's not the case. It's all about faith. The whole of Christian life is about faith from beginning to end. In fact, God's plan was always faith. And we'll see that as we walk through our passage today. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, so we can get the context here. Starting in verse 1 of Galatians 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law 
or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised blessing, or sorry, the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray before we jump in today. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for uh, this word of Paul to the Galatians that has been passed down through the generations to us today. Lord, as we work our way through this passage and study it, Lord, enlighten our hearts and minds to see you, Lord, that, that faith may arise in us, Lord, that we may rest in the work that Jesus Christ has done. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so starting off in verses 1 through 5, we see the first part of Paul's argument here uh, where he calls them foolish Galatians, and he makes this argument about the experience of faith. And Paul actually asks a series of four rhetorical questions uh, to the Galatians to demonstrate that all of the Christian life in the Spirit is by faith and not works. And we'll get to those questions in verses 2 through 5 in a few moments. But, but first, he starts off with something startling here. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Paul is, is calling them foolish to start off. He isn't being very nice in this address to them. But being nice isn't necessarily what's called for when the gospel is at stake. No, he is calling them foolish to rebuke them. He's comparing their deception <clears throat> excuse me, to being under the spell of pagan magic, like a medium. So why is he being so harsh here? Well, the controversy merits it. The very gospel and their salvation are what are at stake. It's a controversy where the message of the Judaizers actually rejects the grace of Christ and nullifies the power of Jesus' death. Did Christ die for nothing? No, we know the answer. And so this is Paul, this is why Paul's attitude is so heated here. The Judaizers are preaching the false gospel of gospel plus circumcision or works. And the gospel plus something is not the true gospel. This is, we've heard this from Chris in the past few weeks. Paul is still emphasizing it here in chapter 3. It is central to the understanding for the Galatians, and I think for us today. And for a moment of application here, while, while circumcision isn't a huge controversy today, I won't say no controversy because there's always some, but it's not much of a controversy today, but that, that doesn't mean that we don't have our own laws or works that we try to add to the gospel today. And one example of such a law 
quote-unquote law, that I believe our American Western evangelical culture falls into is what I've heard called the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. Thou shalt be nice. It's, it's part of the, the fabric of our culture today, seemingly. And I think it's important to start with a definition when walking this out, because I'm not saying that kindness is a false gospel. No, we must always be kind. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But being nice is not a fruit. So to start off with defining things, being nice is it's about being pleasant. It's being agreeable. It's about manners or culture or expectations of decent behavior to others. And those expectations aren't always our own. They're, they're the cultures. And so being nice is something that's often about words. It's about what we say. It's very surface level. It doesn't go very deep. Kindness, on the other hand, is doing good to others, providing something beneficial to others, something that's loving, benevolent, and helpful. And being kind is generally about action, about doing something. And I think the problem with nice is that Niceness is often actually a disguise for our own selfish need to be liked. We want others to think that we are nice. And even more than that, we want others to, th- others to think that we are nice. And so we don't speak up on something important because we're afraid to hurt others. We're afraid to offend them. And we're afraid that maybe they won't like us or they'll be mad at us. And I think... As we see in Scripture, Paul didn't have any problem about speaking up on something important, especially when it was a gospel issue. In fact, we have many examples of Paul and, and others, others in the New Testament. Oh, <laughs> and others in the New Testament uh, not being very nice when it's a gospel issue at stake. Now, I'm going to run through these. Uh, if you want to write down the references, that's fine. Uh, we'll also probably have my sermon up online later so you can look at the notes, but I'm going to run through a series of scriptures that demonstrate this. And Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and turning to a different gospel. Pretty, pretty stark words there, being astonished. Verse, uh, Galatians 1, 9, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Galatians 2.11, as we heard last week. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is due to, to Peter's hypocrisy about publicly not associating with the Gentiles because of the Judaizers, the Jewish circumcision party. In our invoice, on our own chapter today, he calls them foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. Galatians 5.12, he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. In the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 8 through 11, but Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. A couple more examples here. Peter, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, says, Now, when Simon, that's Simon the magician, 
saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And even Jesus, in coming into the temple and seeing money changers in the court, turns their tables over, fashions a whip, and drives them out. These are not very nice actions and words that are being had. But when the gospel is at stake, it's not the niceness that's what's called for. Actually, all of these actions were, were very kind, meant to drive people back to the gospel and to the Lord so they see their sin. And I think our problem here is fear of man. When we're nice, we, we sacrifice clearly speaking the truth for the sake of appearing nice. In other words, wanting others to think that we are nice. And so we stay quiet. We don't speak up and share the truth with them. Someone who we know is lost and needs the truth of Scripture in a particular circumstance or the truth of the gospel. But we don't speak up. And in so doing, we sacrifice speaking the truth to them in love on the altar of our own comfort and on the altar of fear of man. We worship the God of self and comfort instead of the living God in those times. The gospel of nice is actually often, not always, but often very unkind, unloving, and even hateful. You know, Shane spoke last week of having compassion on unbelievers like Jesus does, and I actually think we're saying the same thing in two different ways. We're not opposed here because how little compassion must you have towards someone to stay silent in order to feel good about them liking you instead of sharing the truth of the gospel with them that they so desperately need the very words of life. life. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of nice is as damnable today as the Judaizers' gospel of circumcision was in Paul's day. I think that is one example of our modern day adding a requirement to the gospel, or gospel plus. Let's continue on in the second half of verse 1. It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul is bringing the crucifixion of Christ in front of the Galatians to remind them and to emphasize, hey, remember, Jesus was crucified on your behalf. Your right standing doesn't depend on your own works, but on the work of Christ. In fact, I so clearly state it to you so often when you first came to know the Lord that it's as if it was a public portrayal before your eyes. It should be so vivid and so clear to you that you remember this. You've seen it. Continuing to those four rhetorical questions that we talked about, where Paul lays out an argument from their experience. What have they experienced in the Spirit? Is it by works or is it by faith? Verse 2, he says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here he's talking about the initiation or justification. Or, or a simple way of putting it is, where did your faith start? This is a question about their experience. 
They receive the Holy Spirit at the start. The Holy Spirit transforms a person from death to life. So did all that come by earning it through works of the law? No way. It's not that way for them, and it's not that way for us. It's by hearing with faith. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This is about their, their sanctification, their ongoing walk of life with the Lord. So what's carrying them through day to day through life in their sanctification? Is it the works of the law or is it the Spirit? It's the Spirit through faith again and again. All of life is by faith. I think it's the, the argument that Paul is making here to them. Verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Here, I believe Paul is talking about persecution. You know, the Galatian Christians had to give up a lot to become a Christian, and they suffered mightily for it. Jews, Romans, didn't like it. They persecuted them. And this often meant losing friends or family for making that choice. So if, if justification is by works of the law, then all of their suffering all of their persecution, all that they have experienced would be meaningless. It would be in vain because Christ is nothing in that case. But I think there's a point of hope here for Paul as well because he says, if indeed it was in vain, perhaps they can be corrected to the true gospel of faith. Verse 5, here's his fifth point here. Does, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So how are miracles done among you in your Christian life? You've seen them. Maybe the, the Lord has worked them in and through you. Is the Spirit working in you by your own works of the law? No way. The Spirit works by miracles of faith. And so Paul's opening argument here to them, and I think to us today, is that the whole of Christian life, from start to finish, is all by the Spirit working in us by faith. We start by faith. In other words, we're justified and receive the Spirit by faith. We continue in our Christian lives by faith. In other words, we are sanctified and the Spirit works in us by faith. We stand up under persecution and the Spirit holds us fast by faith. And finally, the Spirit works miracles in and through us by faith. The whole of Christian life from beginning to the end is by the Spirit working in us by faith. Verses 6 through 9, Paul continues on here uh, to, to make the point to them that faith was always the plan. Faith was always the plan from the beginning. Verse 6, he says, Just as Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul is going back. He's going way back with the Galatians. And uh, he's going back to show them that God's plan of justification by faith was always the plan, and it has its roots in the Old Testament. And we'll see throughout the rest of this passage, he quotes the Old Testament a lot here. <laughs> and, and not only the Old Testament, but even Abraham, the father of the faith, so to speak. And it starts in their context of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which is this covenant promise to Abraham. That's what he's, he's quoting here. And it says, it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's belief is what was credited to him as righteousness. It's nothing that Abraham did to earn it. God imputed or, or gave that righteousness to him. But let's, let's start with some quick definitions here. What, what is righteousness? Well, it's the quality of being morally true or justifiable, or, or even more importantly, 
It's actually being right in the eyes of God, including thought, what we think, word, what we speak, and deeds, our actions. So what is God's standard for being right in his eyes? Well, it's the law. If someone is perfectly obedient to the law, he is righteous. He's offered what the law demands. Deuteronomy 6.25 puts it this way, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Now, wait a moment. Didn't we just hear a little differently than that last week? Yeah, we did, and this week. It's, it's impossible. We know it's impossible. No one can perfectly fulfill the law. Galatians 2.16 from last week says, By works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's what's amazing with Abraham. Abraham didn't offer perfect obedience. He was sinful. But instead, Abraham believed. And God looked at him as if he perfectly obeyed the law. Abraham's belief wasn't the cleanest belief either. We see that he he believed and trusted in God and, and moved from his homeland all the way to where the Lord showed him. But along the way, There were some big mess-ups in there, right? He pretended his wife was his sister instead and kind of lied about that. When God promised that he would have a child, they didn't exactly go that way. Abraham had a child with Hagar first, saying, oh, well, this will be the child of the promise. That doesn't sound like the kind of belief and faith that, that I normally think of, but maybe that messy faith and belief, well, there's still belief there because God credited it to him as righteousness. Maybe it doesn't look exactly like we always think it looks. And so Abraham, as it says here in Scripture, Abraham is righteous, counted righteous, by grace alone, through faith alone, and what he didn't know, but is the point of the promise, in Christ alone. Christ is that fulfillment. So God counted Abraham as righteous. And this was before he was even circumcised. Which is interesting, given that all of these arguments about circumcision are going on from the Judaizers. So Romans 4, 9, and 10 puts it this way. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. Faith was always the plan. Let's continue to see this in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, the Judaizers thought that people needed to become more Jewish and observe the law in order to become a descendant of Abraham and receive covenant blessing. In fact, they likely saw themselves as sons of Abraham because they were of Jewish lineage and practice. But Paul had another thing coming for them. The Judaizers understood wrongly. It isn't by works or physical demonstration, circumcision, that someone becomes a son of Abraham. No, it's by faith. Just as the covenant with Abraham was by faith, so too are we able to be included in the covenant by faith. All all of it, the plan was always by faith. Verse 8, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. Salvation by faith, even for the Gentiles, was always God's plan. It's the same as it ever was. It was God's plan from the beginning. Scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. That's what it quotes right here. But hang on a second. What is the gospel as we know it? Well, we're sinful people 
we have transgressed God, we've, we've sinned against Him, and we need a Savior. And we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But how then was the gospel preached to, to Abraham? What does it say here? It says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Well, those two things don't quite sound the same. Those, those aren't saying quite the same thing, are they? How do we reconcile this? God's covenant with Abraham has global, long-term, whole earth effects in its scope and extent of the gospel. Genesis 12, 3 says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this covenant blessing between God and Abraham, the one through faith, is a global blessing to all nations, all families, both Jews and Gentiles. So how are those who don't have faith blessed? And will, will all nations and peoples come to faith? Is, is Paul like playing fast and loose with the gospel here? Is Paul preaching some kind of universalism? No way. No way. Salvation, and we see this throughout, is, throughout Scripture and throughout Paul, is found only in believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's argument is Christ is the offspring of Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise. And we'll see this in, in the coming weeks. But it's all fulfilled in Christ. And so, in Christ are all nations blessed. Because in Christ, salvation isn't just for Israel. It's for all, Jews and Gentiles alike. And from all peoples and all nations will there be people coming to faith in Christ. So, in you shall all nations and peoples be blessed. Oh, that's, that's because it's pointing to Christ and how he's going to fulfill that. It's not just about Israel. Faith was always the plan. Verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you're of faith, you have a blessing. But what does this blessing look like? I think it might look a lot like the Aaronic blessing that comes in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, which is this. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. I think that blessing is peace with God instead of enmity. It's unmerited favor. So those who are of faith have the blessing that they no longer have to fear God as judge, but rather they know God as Father. They, too, are blessed along with Abraham, becoming a son of Abraham. Faith was always the plan of justification, going all the way back to Abraham. Let's move on to our last section, verses 10 through 14. And here we see Paul talking about the curse of the law and the blessing of faith. It's part of his argument. The curse of the law and the blessing of faith. Verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now there's a little bit of a contrast going on here between verses 9 and verse 10. You could read them this way. Verse 9 would say, So then those who are of faith are blessed, and verse 10 could be, could be translated, for all who are of works of the law are under a curse. So if you are of faith, you are blessed. If you are of works of the law, you are under a curse. Now note what this verse does not say. It does not say cursed is everyone who does abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. No. It says cursed is everyone who does not abide. Cursed is everyone who does not abide. And so the problem isn't the law. 
The problem is our sin, our inability to keep the law. Abiding in the law and doing them is the standard for justification. But as we've said already, the problem is no one can obey the law perfectly. In fact, in many ways, the law wasn't even intended to be a means of justification. Instead, because of our inability to obey perfectly, it becomes a curse from which we must be redeemed. A curse that we'll see in weeks to come points to our need for a Savior. So whoever keeps the whole law but fails in it at one point has become accountable for all of it. That's James chapter 2, verse 10. James agrees with that. If we keep the whole law but we fail in one point, we're guilty of all of it. You know, we're all sinners. Most importantly, Scripture attests to this. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we want some other attestations that help agree with Scripture, or that Scripture points to, look through the history of all history. Wars, death, destruction, sinfulness. Our, our very world and culture today, look at sexual, secular and non-Christian life and some of the heinous and abominable things that are going on today. But also our own hearts attest to this. Do you ever stretch the truth just a little bit? Do you ever take something that maybe doesn't exactly belong to you? Or speak unkind words? Something that is just a little, little bit of dislike or hatred in your heart? Well, then God's word condemns you and me. Because according to his word, you are a liar, a thief, and a murderer. You've broken God's law, as have we all. Everyone who depends on God's law is under a curse because we all break the law. Phil Riken puts it this way, the problem with the law then is not the law. The problem with the law is our sin. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And he quotes, the, the righteous shall live by faith. It's evident that no one is justified before God because, uh, by the law because we're all law breakers. In trying to keep the law, if we fail in the littlest part, we fail every time. We're sinful and imperfect. But then how do we live? And Paul answers the question here. He goes back to the Old Testament, to the book of Habakkuk, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, and it, it shows that the righteous live or are justified by faith. And he, this book of Habakkuk is saying this to a group of people who are staring at the Babylonians, coming to them and about to take them from their land, take them from everything they know into captivity. And those righteous who live by faith are the remnant that God is going to hold fast. God always preserves a remnant, and it's those by faith that he is justifying. You know, I want to take a moment here and, and take a look at the role of the law. A little bit of application here. And it's a moment aside because Paul is clear. Our justification is through faith in Christ and not through works of the law. Likewise, our sanctification is through faith in Christ and not the law. And we must not fall into the Judaizer heresy and have a faith plus works gospel. Faith alone is the basis of our salvation. We must not think that works of the law can save us. But does this mean the law has no purpose? What's it for? Do we, do we just abandon the law? No way. Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. 
And as we'll see, Paul covers this some in, in coming weeks, um, the law is partly meant to show us our sin, to show us our desperate need of a Savior in Christ. Historical theology would say that this is the second use of the law. So the first is a curb, and that's just saying to restrain sin. The law can't change hearts, but it can show, like, hey, don't do that, to restrain sin. The second is where the law acts like a mirror. In other words, we're looking at it face-to-face, and it shows us our own sinfulness, our own inability to keep God's law, and thus drives us to Christ because we can't do it in and of ourselves. Salvation is not inside of us. It's outside of us, as Shane said last week. But there's also the third use of the law. This is called the normative use of the law in church history, and it's, it's the path. It's where the law shows us what loving God looks like. The law is never the basis of our faith, but it is the handbook to the fruit of our faith. Let's look at a few scriptures that, that attest to this. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 5, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. What is it to keep God's word but to obey the commandments of Christ? That is to keep the law of God. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in John chapter 14, verse 21, he says, he says Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Brothers and sisters, having emphasized the second use of the law, that's the mirror to expose us to our sin and expose our sin, we, we cannot ignore the third or normative use of the law. That is the path. The path is what justified believers, we, we look to the law in order to know what conduct pleases God, our Heavenly Father. In other words, resting in the power of the Spirit, working in us by grace through faith, the law shows us what love looks like. If you want to know how to love God, learn his commandments so that you can walk in them and obey them by the power of the Spirit of Christ in you. And keeping God's commandment and the power of Christ, there were four things that we just mentioned in those couple of verses before. Keeping God's commandment and the power of the Spirit will show us that we have come to know Christ. It will, number two, give us the assurance that we are in Christ. Keeping God's commandments perfects the love of God in us, and keeping God's commandments, again, not in our own power, but by faith, is the very definition of what it means to love Christ. Let's continue in verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here, Paul, again, going back to the Old Testament, he's doing this a lot because the Judaizers know the Old Testament well. He quotes Leviticus 18.5. And says, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now the law is of works. And doing the law perfectly would bring life if it were possible. But it isn't. So there's two ways to be saved, kind of. <laughs> Number one, you do something. You keep the law perfectly. But this isn't possible. Only Jesus can do that. So really, there's just one way to be saved, and that's to receive something. 
receive salvation that is freely given by grace through faith. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So brothers and sisters, we're all under the curse of the law because we all fail to keep the law. But thanks be to God, Christ has redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. He's quoting Deuteronomy 21-23 here about cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And to give you a little bit of context, when someone in the Old Testament did something that was so heinous, it, it you know, required a death penalty, maybe they were stoned to death, they would, they would then be taken and their body would be hanged on a tree until sundown. And this was to be seen as a fitting punishment for someone who violated the law to such a degree that the punishment needed to serve as a warning to others and demonstrate that God's curse was on that covenant breaker. That's what Paul is referencing here. But interestingly, the apostles, the apostles often call Jesus' cross a tree. Acts 5.30, 1 Peter 2.24, Acts 13.29, all attest to this. Imagine how offensive this was to the Jews to see that the person they are claiming is the Christ was hanged on a tree, that he's cursed by God as the covenant breakers. And the apostles don't hide into it, hide it. They lean into it. They highlight it. It's glorious and unsurprisingly a stumbling block for the Jews. Christ did what we cannot do in perfectly obeying the law. And then suffered the punishment that we deserve by being hanged on a tree. That is the curse, the cross. And in so doing, he took our punishment and became a curse for us and gave us his righteousness. What a beautiful and scandalous exchange that is. The only one to perfectly live and fulfill the law justly receives the curse that we deserve and gives us his righteousness by faith, by belief. And in so doing, he secures the promise of the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant for us. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So to what end? To what end did Christ become a curse for us? So that the blessing of Abraham, that, that is the fulfillment of the covenant promise that, that, that is fulfilled in Christ himself so that the blessing of Abraham might come to all nations, to all peoples, that all peoples might be blessed and receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, God has never changed his plan from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's always been the plan of salvation, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The plan is the same as it always was. All of life is through faith. Now, as we bring this to a close today, I want to address three kinds of people here. I want to talk to believers who struggle with faith plus works in some ways. That's the first group. The second group, I want to talk to believers who rest in their faith and rejoice in that. And, and the third group I want to address is unbelievers today. So for believers who maybe you're struggling today and, and realizes that, realize that you've added something to the gospel as the basis for your salvation, some kind of work, whether it's faith plus niceness or faith plus my own good works, 
Faith plus enough self-loathing. Faith plus right theology. Or faith plus being authentic and being true to yourself and following your heart. Brothers and sisters, these are all false gospels that Paul is calling you to repent of. Having started with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your niceness to others? Are you now being perfected by your own good works? Are you now being perfected by maybe enough self-loathing that, that God knows that I view myself lowly enough, and so he's good with me, good, good to save me? Or maybe you're being perfected by your, your own right theology, your own right belief. Is that what perfects you? Maybe it's being authentic, and ah, as long as I'm true to myself, God knows. God knows, right? No, of course not. Don't rely on works of the law. Whatever law or works you're adding to the gospel, adding to faith, no one is justified by works of the law. Instead, rest in God's good promise, the promise of inheritance given to Abraham, which is yours by faith in Christ. Rest in faith alone, and put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, those works of the law that cannot save. Peace with God and the very peace of Christ with, uh, in Christ Jesus will be yours. Number two. I've got two more guys. <laughs> You're going to play me out in the background. Number two, believers who rest in faith. To those believers who already rest in faith alone, in, in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, do this all the more. All of life. From our justification where we start, our sanctification, how we walk day by day, to our glorification is by grace through faith. And this passage today serves as a deep reminder of this. Do you know that your inheritance in Christ is by faith? Rest in that. For you, I ask, what's the purpose of the law to you? Do you see it as that mirror, that reflection to show your own sin and iniquity and your need for a Savior? Strive for that. Embrace that. Do you see it as a path where the law shows you what love looks like so that in seeking to keep God's commandments, resting in the power of the Spirit, it may show you that you've come to know Christ. It may give you assurance that you're in Christ. It may perfect God's love in you. And that keeping that is the very definition of what it means to love Christ. Brothers, if, if, if you are a believer here who rests in faith alone, Rest in that grace alone, through faith alone, for all of life, including what it looks like to obey and please God. Finally, unbelievers. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You don't have faith in Christ that is trusting in him as Lord for your hope of salvation and walking with him by his Holy Spirit in your day-to-day -day life. If that's you, then today's passage has a stark warning for you. It's not a nice message to hear, but it is kind because this message desires your eternal good. Hear this. If you don't have faith in Christ Jesus, then you are imprisoned under sin. If you're trying to be good enough, you can never measure up because by God's standard, if you break the least of one of his laws, you are held accountable and guilty of all of them. And standing guilty before God of breaking God's law, you are under a curse. But thanks be to God that he has provided the way of salvation. If you receive the promised spirit through faith, 
in Christ alone, you can be redeemed by Christ Jesus. And he will take your curse away, becoming a curse for you. And in him, the blessing of Abraham, that is the inheritance of God, eternal life, and becoming a son of God can be yours in Christ Jesus. If God is calling you today, don't delay. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, trust in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you call us to be people of faith, that you call us to turn our eyes to you on faith, that we may rest in you alone. Lord, do that work in us today. Turn our eyes to you, Jesus, so that we may rest in you with whatever is going on in our life. Circumstances change, Lord, but you stay the same. You are our eternal God and Father. Lord, help us to rest in you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray.